Hey there, friends, and welcome to episode 140 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I am joined by a conservationist and podcaster who is here to wallow in the delightful glory of the humble pangolin. We discuss how the pangolin's unique adaptations tip the scales in favor of this walking pine cone and what challenges they face in the world today. So curl up into a nice, cozy little ball and enjoy. Just the Zoo of Us presents Pangolins with Jack Baker. everybody, it's Ellen Weatherford. This is Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast. And this week I'm joined by a friend who may not be a new friend to some of you. I'm sure there's quite a bit of overlap between our friends. This is Jack Baker. Say hi, Jack. Hello, everyone. Jack is here to talk about, okay, I'm going to say it, one of my all-time favorite animals. <laughs> not a joke. It's almost like I've been saving it because I just like really wanted to make sure this animal was getting done justice. <laughs> and like, I almost didn't want to take it on myself because I was like, it's so sacred to me. This is the pangolin, which is perfect for you because the pangolin is the namesake of your podcast. Yes, yes, it is. So, uh, not to add any pressure then to me at all, <laughs> at all. I'm just sat here, like, faces going red, like, oh no. Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> No. Uh, so yes, I am Jack. To anyone who doesn't know me, um, hello. And to anyone who does know me, hello. And I'm the host of Pangolin, the conservation podcast, which started out as a podcast dedicated to all things Pangolin. And then as it developed, I realised Pangolins to me represent all of the kind of underappreciated underdog conservation stories out there. And so I kind of expanded from there. And we've gone on to talk about all sorts of other bizarre, underappreciated, underacknowledged, wonderful conservation stories, things like lemurs and red pandas and koalas and all the kind of bizarre little things that maybe you don't know a lot about to do with conservation. So yes, started with the pangolin and ended up here. Now we're here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have some mutual connections through the Lemur Conservation Network as well. We've had some of their folks on the show before, and I understand you have too. You've worked with them about on doing some episodes about lemurs in Madagascar. Yes. It was one of those things that I shot an email to them and just said, listen, I would love to have a singular representative of your show <laughs> kind of come on the podcast, talk about lemurs, because I think they're one of these things that people know a lot about, maybe ring-tailed lemurs, or know a lot about kind of the big kind of popular species. The Zabumafus out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they know about these kind of big things, but they don't know about all of the things that go alongside them. And so they came back to me and said, well, actually we have, we're a network. So we have mm -hmm. so many different people that would love to speak to you. And I think we ended up with 12 episodes dedicated to Madagascar. And we looked at everything from lemurs to baobabs to the communities that live in Madagascar and the drought and that's going on and kind of looked at conservation and Madagascar and lemurs from so many different angles, kind of paint this full picture of conservation. And it was just fantastic. And like, yes, I love them so much. It's one of those things that I liked lemurs and I was interested in lemurs, but I didn't know that much about them. And now I'm like, they're up there. They're top tier. They always <laughs> kind of just below, just below the pangolin, obviously, but still 
still top top tier. That spot is reserved. Yeah, <laughs> locked in. Yeah, locked in. It's well, it's a toss up. People always ask me what my favorite animal is, and assume because the podcast is named Pangolin, it would be that. But tapirs are coming up mm. the rear, really close, oh. really, really close. Um, You're just a big fan of that sloping facial structure, aren't you? Maybe it is elephants is that what as it well. Is? Are a big fan of those? Yes. So yeah, it could just be. You love a good banana a, face, huh? Strange looking animals. Maybe that's what it is. I have quite a big nose, so if, if I turn to the side, you can't tell on camera when we're looking at each other, Ellen. But like when I turn to the side, big nose. Maybe that's what it is. Just a sense of like representation, like seeing yourself reflected in the animal. Yeah, yeah, and also I feel like the reason I chose to study the pangolin when I was kind of looking to create my podcast in the first place was because I kind of saw this animal that is small, underrepresented, doesn't speak mm. up a lot, and I see a lot of. I was like during the pandemic, it was kind of like that time where everyone was retreating inside, hiding away, not getting a lot of attention, not kind of speaking to one. And so I was like, we need to focus on an animal which I see having those similar traits, the pangolin. Curling up into our little balls. Yes, exactly. <laughs> kind of hiding ourselves away. And yeah, that kind of spiritual connection of like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, Trying to keep us on topic there, but I'm probably going to go off topic again <laughs> immediately. But Well, you'd be surprised at how on topic you were because I was just about to ask you, like, what got you into pangolins? Mm -hmm. And more so just like, what got you into the work that you do with conservation? Yeah, so, well, pangolins came later. So I guess I'll start with conservation in general and then move forward. Animals conservation are one of those things that I think always have been in my heart, on my mind, always love them. But in school and things, I was always one of those people who did well in written subjects like English or history or politics or that kind of thing. So Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So naturally, when you're good at something like that, everyone in your life goes, you should do that. Go and do this and do it. So I went away to uni. You should commodify this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. You should commodify something that you're good at, even if you don't enjoy it. Uh, that's, the, <laughs> that's the way that the world goes. And so, yeah, I went away and studied kind of politics. And then while I was doing that, I was working in an aquarium to kind of earn money. And so this love of animals has always been there and kind of in the background. And I was always happiest around them. And it got to the end of my degree in politics. And I went, when am I happiest? Am I happiest when I'm sitting in class learning about politics? I could go and get a job in an office and do this, that and next thing now. Or I could go out there and put myself into conservation and follow this dream. And it came down to, and I've told this story on my own podcast so many times, but I feel like it's, <laughs> it's a great... And I'm going to shout him out again. The baby polar bear that was born at the Highland Wildlife Park in Scotland. Little baby Hamish. Hamish! So cute. A good Scottish name. A great <laughs> Scottish name. Um, so we Hamish was born just after I finished my degree. And I went up to the Highland Wildlife Park. I saw him and I was so happy just surrounded by nature and seeing this incredible, beautiful animal be born. And it was like that moment where I was like... I've not felt this happiness doing politics in so long, like I'm going to jump and just commit. So I went back and did a master's in conservation and worked at Edinburgh Zoo and kind of committed fully to conservation. And along the way there, I met the pangolin. So for my dissertation, we were invited to do kind of a creative thing. Instead of writing, maybe you could do something a bit different. So I decided to do a podcast series all about the pangolin learned all about it, fell in love with it instantly. I think one of the first email communications I ever had with my supervisor at the time was she just sent me a video of kind of one of the pangolins they were tracking in Namibia and it was just rolling around in a mud bath and I was instantly in love. Ugh. And 
ever since then, it's kind of been the one for me that kind of, yeah. So, yes. I just said this on our Babi Rusa episode, but I love a good wallow. Oh, man. It's, you yeah. give me something that rolls around in the mud. That's it, man. It's game <laughs> over. I love that. It is. And it's something that like, especially w- the day we're recording this is probably one of Scotland's four sunny days of the year. So I'm sat here like thinking about that, that video now and like, I wish I could wallow. I wish I just had a nice, cold, like chilled out space in the back garden where I could just go and like lie in water and mud and just kind of lie there and <laughs> bake slowly. Like that's just the dream. I'll tell you what you do. You you go to a hardware store. You said you work in a botanical garden. Grab some soil. <laughs> go yeah. toss it in your backyard or on your driveway or something. And mm-hmm. then you just hose it down. And there you go. You got some mud going, baby. Yeah, obviously. Get yourself a wallow. Yeah, I'm sure my family would not question that at all. They wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Is Jack okay? <laughs> He's just wallowing. Going like, through some stuff. <laughs> I love how usually when we talk about humans wallowing, they're like, oh, is he okay emotionally? Well, he looks happier than he's ever been, but he's physically actually wallowing in the back garden. <laughs> this is an act of self-care. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in conclusion, to wrap up that long-winded story, <laughs> always loved animals. I, you know, It's one of those things that has always been there in my mind, mm-hmm. conservation and animals and growing up watching things like Steve Irwin and Animal Planet and David Attenborough and all of these people <laughs> kind of influencing. Now I'm where I am now, living the dream. I suppose it's a familiar story, you know. I feel like a lot of people that come on here, you know, come yeah. from similar beginnings of being inspired as a kid. And you know, I, I'm glad that you said that you did work also in social science and political science too, because like when you're talking about conservation, that's something that plays a huge role in it. You know, like you can understand the animals all you want, but you know, you got to also understand what's going on with the human element when you're talking about conservation and how humans are affecting the populations of the animals. So, you know, that's all part of it together. I know you said that you kind of like departed from studying politics, but like that's a great foundation to have when you understand the politics that are going on too. Yeah, definitely. And it was, what was great about my conservation degree that I did after my undergrad was that it was interdisciplinary. So it had people from political backgrounds, geography backgrounds, biology backgrounds. And I think when you get all of those people in the same space, that's actually when you get the most productive results. Because if you focus all on the science or you focus all on the politics, you get very insular and you get these kind of set mindsets that just kind of develop. And so having people around with these differing backgrounds I think was very constructive for me personally. It's one of those things where personally I wish it wasn't political because I feel like there should just be this general consensus that we need to do good and right by the environment and plants and the animals that we live around about. But it's never that easy. So right. it's good to have that that skill set of like, okay, how do we how do we deal with politicians or whatever it is that maybe have different agendas to the ones that us, me, you, the listeners have in our minds and our hearts. So it's it's a good background, I think, to to have. You mentioned that during your master's program, you were focusing on pangolins. Did you have any opportunities to like travel to see them or like work with them in person? Oh, so you might have seen my eye twitch there <laughs> because I was, my master's took place in 2020, mm. which um, was a interesting time. We had a research trip booked for me and several others to go to Namibia to visit, learn from people there. We were going to learn about the trophy hunting debates that go on around Namibia. It was all kind of topics that were going on. And then March 2020 comes along. It's rough timing. Rough timing. I have never felt worse. I don't know if I've told this story (laughs) on my podcast, so you're getting an exclusive for me on this one. This is premium content, folks. Premium, premium content. (laughs) I I have never felt worse. I had a flat inspection that day from the, the letting 
booking agent that we were renting from and I just got back from the gym and I looked at my emails and it just said like research trip has been cancelled oh. and the po- so I was like it's, it's fine it's fine um so I went <laughs> had a shower came back through and then I started processing it and just at that moment the letting agent knocks on the door and in she comes she's like oh, I'm here for the inspection and she walks up the stairs of my flat and finds me sitting on my bedroom floor in a towel just sobbing oh. <laughs> like I can't go and see the pangolins and she's like okay now and then she very quickly does a <laughs> she quickly goes and does a little run around the flat and then out in seconds so really i could have had a real mess in there and they would have never have cared they were in and out um, but you know it's a <laughs> so it was a moment so you seem to be experiencing something <laughs> we're just gonna leave you to it um and just say yeah yeah it's it's fine you know what that would have been a great moment for mm-hmm a good wallow (laughs) it would have been the perfect time for a wallow it was it it was the closest i've ever been to a wallow just um but yes so never got to go and see them but the good thing was in the age of technology we were able to do kind of camera trapping exercises where we spoke to people in namibia and we were each kind of assigned animals to track and get photos of and all sorts of things so i feel like while i didn't get to see it i got a really good experience i think it also taught me that like we don't have to be jet setting around the world to learn about animals all the time which i think is an interesting concept and it also set me down this path of like I got the job I am in now because I was good at online communication and skills that I learned through studying the pangolin and through communicating with people all over the world during the pandemic so while I didn't get to go on this trip and didn't get to form that physical connection necessarily it's kind of led me down this like really good domino effect of like oh I got Mm. a job because of it other good things going on in my life that have all happened because of the pangolin and because of one research trip being cancelled so yeah Sounds like you mastered the long distance relationship. I think so. I think there's <laughs> it's the most successful relationship I've ever think I've had in my life. Uh, <laughs> um, but yes, mastered, nailed it, a hundred percent. It gave me a good excuse, I suppose. Not being able to go and see them in person. If you're in the country and you're trying to organise physical meetings with people to discuss topics and things, it can be quite difficult to pin people down. But recording yeah. a podcast, the great thing <laughs> we were able to just like email people in Hong Kong. We could email people in Namibia we could email people wherever in the world they were and kind of chat to them and so I think in Scotland we have this saying what's for you won't go by you Mm. which basically means if something is meant to happen it will happen and when that was first said to me I was like but I wanted to go though like (laughs) I think that uh, (laughs) whereas now it's kind of like okay now I've taken a step back and had kind of other kind of retrospective look and it's good and yeah mastered the the long Mm. distance. So for listeners who might be hearing your joy and love and passion for the pangolin and are perhaps listening and thinking, what on earth is a pangolin? I've never heard of this thing in my life. Possibly might be thinking you are saying penguin, which I've had. I've, uh, had, that. I've had that struggle in the past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every single automatic transcript, because it was submitted as part of a dissertation, I had to write up transcripts for all of my podcasts. And Microsoft Word autotranscript is great until it replaces everything. It thinks I've written a dissertation about penguins that live in Namibia, which is just not, no, 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 not a thing. That would be way bigger if true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, yeah, I was going to say, I've made a great discovery if there are penguins living in the deserts of Namibia. That would be, I'd be world renowned by this point if that was a thing. 
we're not talking about penguins today, but folks might be listening and might be like, what is this creature? I've never heard of this in my life. I don't feel like you're not going to find them in, you know, babies first animals. In fact, I have a memory of being in a biology lecture and one of my professor's slides had a picture of a pangolin on it when he was talking, I think he was talking about keratin, um, which we'll get into later. Mm -hmm. I'm sure (laughs) 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 it will come up and had a picture of a pangolin on there, but he didn't say anything about it. It was just a picture on the slide. And I heard these two girls sitting behind me kind of whisper to each other. They're like, what is that? Like, I I don't know what that is. And one of them was like, I think it's an armadillo because we have armadillos here. So they kind of see some similarity with the nine banded armadillo. But they were like, I think it's an armadillo. Now it kind of looks like an anteater. What is this thing? And like, I knew what it was. And so I got to turn around and be like, listen, guys, y'all need to Google Pangolin, P-A-N-G-O-L. <laughs> I was like, Google them, look up every picture you can, learn everything there is to know about this creature. I don't have time because we're in the middle of a lecture, so I cannot info dump on you right now, but Google it. You will thank me later. Um, but like, people don't usually know what pangolins are. No. So if someone comes up to you and asks you, what's a pangolin? What is your intro to elevator pitch for the pangolin <laughs> okay so i uh it's a hard one because as you say no one knows and i've had similar experience where people like the first time i showed them a picture they'd be like so are you studying like a reptile because it has mm. like it looks like a like it's got scales like is it a lizard or is it like a it you know, and it has the tongue it has a very long tongue so again yeah. it looks kind of reptilian and you're like no so the pangolin for anyone who doesn't know is the world's only scaly mammal they range in size from about a couple kilograms all the way up to about 33 kilograms, depending on the species. There are eight different species found across the world, four in Africa, four in Asia, and they are really hard to describe. If you imagine an armadillo, but with a kind of longer, kind of bulkier tail, and instead of bands, scales almost like... Well, they're not even really reptile because they don't stick flat down. They kind of stick out. So they are. They're hard to describe. And a lot of the time, it just results in me going, Google a picture. Just go and Google a picture. Come back to me and we can talk about them for hours. But trying to get that initial image in someone's head is really hard to conjure up. So yeah, it's a small, scaly, mousy, armadillo-y mammal. I feel like they look kind of to me like uh, an anteater with scale mail like plate armor that has Mm -hmm. like the overlapping like metal scales on it like you'd see on some sort of knight in a fantasy movie or something yes yes (laughs) Um, and something actually i've been listening to recent episodes that you've been releasing and i the pokemon keeps being brought up oh yeah without fail (laughs) yes so i'm going to continue that trend and say if you love sandshrew and sandslash yes like i do absolutely they are the pangolins of the pokemon world the kind of Mm -hmm. beigey mousy kind of sandy looking creatures they don't entirely look like sandshrew or sandslash but if there was a middle evolution for mm-hmm. them that's probably where the pangolin would land in this kind of yeah. strange um, kind of intersection of the two they got the claws they got mm-hmm. the big scales they dig in the sand the funny nose there you go the- <laughs> that's sandslash all the way there you go yeah so for the people who we've not isolated with that kind of <laughs> comparison that's the perfect one that's the best way to describe them and that is to say like not all of the pangolins are digging around on the ground right you mentioned the ones that you studied were in namibia in the deserts so those are pangolins that are kind of <laughs> they walk in a really funny way 
Yes, yes. <laughs> Where they kind of walk around on their like back legs with their front legs kind of like tucked up under them in a very cute way. But there's also pangolins that live up in the trees. Those are just delightful too. I think they're so special because it's like the design of the pangolin has been perfected and then they've just altered it slightly for different areas and different places where they need to be. So yeah, I kind of know a little bit about the tree-dwelling semi-arboreal pangolins that kind of live on the ground and then disappear up trees. They can hold, support their whole body weight by their tail, which I think is really interesting and exciting and cool. Normally, I, I kind of said that like, oh, I, I think that's cool. Like, I'm not on a podcast where everyone is going, this is really cool. Like, <laughs> Right, like, we're all in this together. <laughs> yes, we're, in, we're knee deep in this now. Target audience acquired. <laughs> yes, they all kind of burrow and they'll kind of disappear underground, but there are some that will disappear up trees as well. The black-bellied and white-bellied pangolin and the African species will whoop up trees um, and yeah, they can hang on from their tails. So I know a little bit, maybe not an expert, but I feel like the design is fairly transferable. It's just like these little variations between them that set them apart. Much in the way that Pokemon vary by region. Exactly. I promise. <laughs> We're not getting into Alolan. This is not a Pokemon fan cast. Um, I mean, it a little bit is. Mm. The one that I was kind of looking at is the Temnix ground pangolin. But I'm the type of person where once I am studying something, once that door is opened, I'm going through all the different pathways and trying to find out. So, yeah. We're just <laughs> neck deep in Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Got 40 tabs open, which, I mean, listen, we've all been there. I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody were to try to, like, locate the pangolin on the mammal family tree, where would you find the pangolin? Like, what are its cousins? I like to think of this so that I can kind of understand, like, what is the evolutionary context that animal is in? Like, And you'd look at a pangolin and it might be kind of tough to figure out, right? You're like... Uh, you know, it hangs from its tail like a primate, but it digs in the ground like a mole, but it also eats insects like an anteater. Like there's so much going on. Like where would you find the pangolin in our big family tree? So this is going to confuse the situation even more. It's oh, so bizarre out there. <laughs> so you'd think Pelosa, the anteaters, it would kind of fall boom, right in there with giant anteaters and all sorts of things. Sure. But in fact, closest relatives are carnivora. Oh. So cats, dogs. Out of left field. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. It just is kind of this bizarre, like, it shouldn't fit there. It, in my mind, it shouldn't because it's an insectivore. It has the kind of long tongue like the anteater. It has the kind of scales, almost like an armadillo-esque type creature. And it just, yeah, it shouldn't fit there. But it, there it is near carnivore with everything all those other things <laughs> reminds me a little bit of we were just talking with dr christine wilkinson about hyenas mm -hmm. and they mentioned art wolves yes which are hyenas and yet eat bugs so they can have some interesting builds <laughs> yeah i'm i'm really intrigued by this bizarre convergent evolution and where ev evolution to me is something that I wish I could take like a step back into the universe and look down and just watch. And I know, I don't know if you're familiar with the video game Spore. Oh my I played God. that game so much as a so child. Much. Yes. And so I wish there was mm -hmm. kind of a real life Spore of like, how, how can I fully understand it? I mean, there is, there's science textbooks out there that would explain it all <laughs> to you, but it needs to be presented in that kind of Spore-like easy way for me to fully process it. <laughs> I'm staring at the pangolin like, why are you like Why? This? <laughs> why? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm glad 
glad you are. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because, like, the typical armadillos and eaters are all kind of South Central American species. And then these guys are found across China, Indonesia, and a lot of Africa, South Africa, Namibia, that kind of area. So it really is kind of this weird convergence of similar traits in a very kind of different way. And so, yeah, I find that to be bizarre, confusing, <laughs> but somehow makes me love them more because I'm like, I don't know what you are, but I just, <laughs> yeah, good for you. I love when animals that are not related to each other and live nowhere close to each other occupy a similar niche in their ecosystem. Like maybe they're performing a similar role or they have a similar job in the place where they live. And so, you know, you start to see these sort of eerily similar features that get copied and pasted just because that's what works best because of that tool, right? If it's the best way to do it, of course. It just makes sense. You're going to get there eventually. Yeah. And I think what's special to me about the pangolin is that it seems to have picked the best and most interesting traits from a kind of variety of different things. So like with the burrowing and the climbing and the, the way that it rolls up and all of these sorts. Of, it's like taking all the most charismatic, interesting traits of other animals <laughs> and smooshed them together and gone, this is me. This is what I'm going to be. Well, let's get into it. Let's dig into these awesome, cool traits. <laughs> if this is your first time listening to our podcast, what we do is we rate animals out of 10 uh, in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics, starting with effectiveness, which for us is physical adaptations. So things that are built into the animal's body, like things that they have that let them do a good job at the things they're trying to do. They're trying to not get eaten by other things, get their food, get their prey, things that are built into their body that let them do their stuff. What do you give pangolins out of 10 for effectiveness? I don't know if this is controversial and I don't know oh. how many previous guests have come in with the big guns and gone, I believe my animal is best. But Pretty much all of them, but it's okay. Okay, well, I'm going 10. <laughs> I'm going 10. Uh, you absolutely <laughs> have every right to do that. And I did show my hand earlier by saying that I love them so much. So like, yeah, I'm clearly going to let it slide. Okay, because I've knocked a couple points off here and there in the next rounds. So don't worry, people are thinking he's just going to be biased to give them 10 for everything. I'm not. <laughs> uh, but for effectiveness, I think physically, the pangolin is adapted perfectly to where it is, what it needs to do, what it eats, how it protects itself, how it kind of raises its young. I can't think of any way <laughs> to fault this physical design. This is what peak performance looks like. Exactly. This is the Venus and Serena Williams of the animal <laughs> world. The kind of peak Absolutely. top level. There's no one above. The platonic ideal of an animal. Exactly. Um, exactly <laughs> what you want an animal to be, which might sound strange because I think a lot of people would think elephants or like whales or like these big popular animals, they must be peak because they are the most popular. No, it's the mm -hmm. weird ones that are best. Um, <laughs> I have written down some things that I think make it special. First of all, it is the world's only scaly mammal, which I think 10 out of 10 just for that, because if, if you're the only one, it makes you very special. How has everybody else not figured this out? Exactly. exactly. What are you dragging your feet on? <laughs> Get with the program. <laughs> I wish sometimes when I look at the way that pangolins have their scales, armadillos have a carapace, porcupines have quills, looking at all of the different defenses that animals have and ways that they protect their body, I feel like humans sort of didn't understand the assignment a little bit. I feel like we missed a class or two. <laughs> We're just squishy. And squishy everywhere. Yes. Not, not a single part of us is designed to sit. Like, <laughs> if I fell off something, I could die. This could drop out of a tree and we just keep on walking. No fall damage. Nothing. Zero. So, yeah, they kind of have scales along their entire body. And they're perfect design because they live in, as I've said, Africa and um, Asia, where there are 
large predatory animals. And not just large predatory cats go for these guys. You'll have chimpanzees, you'll have all sorts of big, clever, smart thinkers trying to work out how to get to them. And so to have scales, which you can wrap yourself up in a ball, hide yourself away, you're instantly like a bowling ball. You're protected, you're fine. They're made of keratin, so same as things as like our fingernails, rhino horn. Hair. Hair, yes. Uh, You got it, it's right there. Yeah, we've all got a little bit of pangolin in us somewhere. We've got the making, see, we could have been great. (laughs) (laughs) We could have had it. (laughs) Yeah, and instead we just use it to style and cut and look fabulous and pretty. But I'm like, we don't need that. Well... That part is pretty fun. <laughs> I mean, I am sitting here on the hottest day of the year so far in Scotland, like sweating in my hair, like not looking at its best. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got, we've got Florida humidity. It's, it's rough out there for people with curly hair like me. We could have had both though. Yeah, they have little hairs. They have little tufts of things sticking out. So we could have done the same. And I think, yeah, it's this perfect defense mechanism of wrap up in a ball. And that's just the first of the many features I think justify the for the pangolin. Someone I interviewed for my podcast, Dr. Morgan Hotflash, who works in the Namibia University of Science and Technology, something he summed up perfectly for me and why they are so effective and brilliant is that they have a cumulative impact on their environments, he would say, as much as elephants. Wow. So, yes, I think really interesting because their design doesn't just benefit them, it benefits everything around about them. So, for example, you have things like They are insectivores, they eat insects. They can have these big, strong claws that kind of dig away at the termite mounds or wherever it is they're trying to get their food. They have long tongues then that they can then foop in, grab the the food out and pull it in. And then inside their bodies, they have spikes kind of down their digestive tract to grind everything up, which I think is really interesting. That is interesting. I've never heard of that. Yeah. And the tongue goes all the way into their body. It's, I think, the length, it's at least the length of their body and it will roll up and they have a little special pouch that they can hold that in. Mmm, a tongue pouch. Pouch. <laughs> I, I wish you hadn't phrased it like that because it was interesting until you went mm, tongue pouch. That, that makes it weird. That makes it weird. Do we have to take a point off now? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, they're designed in a way to perfectly get the food that they want. And that then knock-on effect is insectivores very important for controlling bug populations that would go on to destroy habitats and do all sorts of things so perfect for that they also one of their main activities is burrowing so in namibia and other places where they need to get under the ground to kind of stay cool have a constant temperature look after their young they're designed with these big claws to dig get under there and then obviously the knock-on effect of that is then by digging burrows you provide shelter for other animals things like porcupines tortoises will hide away in them they also churn up the land so for plant life and things keep things going that way and obviously in places like Namibia as well where there's very little rainfall anything that lets water underground when it does fall and kind of soak it in is also a benefit for the ecosystem so my argument there for 10 out of 10 is that they are perfectly designed for what they need to do and then the the knock-on effect is then everything else benefits as well so I think it's a strong one for me personally such a good ripple in the pond like yes just a nice little pebble that falls out of the pond and makes a big beautiful ripple you're talking about anything that lets water sort of soak up underground. Do their burrows flood? I think in Namibia, they have been experiencing a lot of drought for the last few years. So whenever it does rain, I think it's less an issue of flooding. And the way that I've always been kind of thinking about it is to get this water underground as a benefit. And I haven't actually thought too much about the flooding aspect. I mean, they're nocturnal, mostly nocturnal. They'll kind of come out sometimes a little bit earlier, a little bit later, but they are mostly nocturnal. So I suppose they're out and about a lot of the time. They do have quite large 
home ranges, they'll dig burrows kind of freshly. So even if it does flood, I don't think it's that big of an issue for them. Maybe they'll just move on, find somewhere else. Yeah, I think they just move on. I don't don't think it's a huge issue. Okay, that's good to know. I mean, well, this this thing, you're like, it's not a huge issue, but also it's probably because climate change, they don't have rain a lot. So it's it's this kind of like, oh, it is an issue because... It's it's not great for them in terms of that, but... Zoomed out, bad. Zoomed in, not that bad. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Okay, so we've, the pangolin is great at digging in the ground and burrowing. They're great at eating bugs. Are they sort of limited to just like ground-based movement or do they have a little bit of like ability to like climb trees or maybe swim? They are shockingly swimmers. In terms of climbing trees, it's more the kind of Asian species are semi-arboreal. The kind of ground pangolins, the giant pangolins, I think stick mostly to the ground level um, just because it's different habitats that they've adapted to. But in terms of water, they can hold air inside them and kind of float they kind of help themselves kind of float along so they are actually quite effective swimmers as well so that's so cute (laughs) it's it's a bizarre one and i think it's a strange thing because you think why would they need to do this this doesn't seem like something they would need to do but they can do it just in case (laughs) so again they've chosen all the best (laughs) elements of everyone else and smooshed it together to go this is us and we're perfect Um, (laughs) we're amazing yes exactly exactly you mentioned that they're nocturnal and just thinking about the way that they look I know that they have little tiny eyes, so I would assume they're not super great at seeing. Do they have ears? So that has actually reminded me of something I meant to say about eating bugs. Another plus for the pangolin is that when they are eating termites or insects that might sting or bite or be nasty to them, they have little muscles so they can close up their nostrils and their ears. So they can keep them closed and then nothing can get in and bother them and sting or be nasty or leave any marks. Airtight. Exactly. The argument for them is much like their nostrils. It is airtight. Like, there you go. That's the... (laughs) uh, (laughs) Shut down. Fort Knox. Drop the mic right there. That is done. Does this like kind of render them like completely devoid of any sensory input? I would imagine if you you got your eyes closed, ears closed. I mean, that, that kind of leaves you blind, right? Like, like going through with essentially no sort of sensory input. I mean, I, I suppose it's when, when they're eating. So I suppose it's probably not the biggest of issues. But it's like you're already eating. So like mission accomplished. What more do you need? <laughs> exactly. And worse comes to worse, someone grabs you. Something big predator comes up behind you thump, into mm-hmm. a ball. All bases covered. There you there go. You go. You're Done. fine. 360 degrees of coverage. You're great. Exactly. Do they ever use those big digging claws like offensively? Like is that also a weapon of sorts? So something on my podcast, I was talking recently to Arno Debbie, who works on the Giant Armadillo Conservation Project and the Giant Anteater Project. And we were talking about tamanduas and anteaters and kind of how they use those claws. They're kind of fairly docile, friendly, nice kind of creatures. But if you kind of push them, they kind of do that thing where they stick their arms up <laughs> and they fantastic. kind of... Look a bit nasty. It's a famous meme. Uh, Yes. (laughs) And like you don't want to mess with them when they do that because those claws could take a serious chunk out of you if they got right in. I have not heard of stories of this. I think pangolins are very kind of defensive and I think it doesn't work always in their favour. And I would have knocked a point off for that, but I think that's ingenuity. Like once they ball up, they kind of stick like that. And so they're easy to then pick up and take away because they're not big fighters. They don't fight. They don't really flight. They just kind of hide. Yeah, it's not really an offensive tool. Sure, that makes sense. Hey there, we are going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of other shows on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we are going to talk ingenuity, aesthetics, and conservation of the pangolin. So stay tuned. 
Max Fun Drive is just around the corner. 2022. Starting April 25th, it's the best time of the year to support your favorite shows by becoming a Max Fun member or upgrading your membership. Just two weeks. We've got some great episodes and amazing thank you gifts in store. And who knows, maybe a few surprises. Don't forget bonus content. So make sure to tune in starting Monday, April 25th to get all the juicy details on what each show has in store. Actually, wait, what are the details anyway? And why are they juicy? That's kind of a strange adjective to describe. Look, it's a rough world out there, especially lately. I get it. So let's take care of our minds as best we can. I'm John Moe, host of Depression Mode with John Moe. Every week, I talk with comedians, actors, writers, musicians, doctors, therapists, and everyday folks about the obstacles that our world and our brains throw in front of us. Depression, anxiety, traumatic stress, all those mental health challenges that are way more common and more treatable than you might think. The first time I went to therapy, I was so ashamed, and I was like, can't believe I gotta go into therapy. Like, I thought I could be a man, and Humphrey Bogart was never in therapy. And then my dad said, yeah, but he smoked a carton of cigarettes a day. Give your mind a break, give yourself a break, and join me for Depression Mode with John Moe. I mean, that brings us to ingenuity. I mean, let's go ahead and get into it. You know, ingenuity for us is behavioral adaptation. So this is things the animal is doing with their body to solve problems that they face, not get eaten. <laughs> again, you know, but these are things that they're more actively doing. What would you give the pangolin out of 10 for ingenuity? So this was a tricky one for me because the problems that they make for themselves are not problems they have with other animals necessarily. They're problems they have with one very big problem animal, which is us. So I was like, I feel like I need to knock a couple points off, but also it's not really their fault. So I'm going to say I was giving them an eight for ingenuity, which I think is still a good mark. And I think it's it still is. fair. S strong. Yeah. And, and in terms of the plus sides, you've got things like the bawling behaviour generally usually pretty good you've got the burrows to kind of keep themselves and their young safe so they'll burrow down and the reason they do that is to kind of get to a cool temperature they can hide their young they have one occasionally two usually one pango pup which is the name of the babies <laughs> at a time are you saying pango pup mm -hmm. yes wow which is Spectacular. <laughs> it's it's in the grand scheme of baby animal names. That's a great one. Yeah. Puppies may be cute to look at and be like, oh, look at that puppy. No, but the name, <laughs> nah, Pangle Pup, better. So they will bury under the ground. They carry their young on their back. So when the young are born, they're very vulnerable. They're little. Their keratin scales, they don't harden for a few days after they're born. So they're kind of squishy. Oh. So yeah, so they carry them on their back to keep them safe. So all kind of ingenuity pluses, I would say there. But then the negative side of that is rolling up in a ball makes you an easy target for humans because we can just come along, pick you up and do whatever mm. we want with you. Now you're just portable. Yes. And the main threats to pangolins are things like trafficking. And so not great. And also, this is kind of a sad fact about pangolins, which is a changing landscape really affects them. And the balling thing works really well most of the time. But not only does it open you up to being picked up and taken away, when an electric fence or something comes along, from, divides your habitat, the problem pangolins have is their protective behaviour obviously balls up. They will kind of walk into a, an electric fence. If they hit that, they're not like a big deer or an elephant that'll kind of bounce off. They hold their little hands up in front of them. And so what they'll do is they'll hit the wire 
hold it and then they're scared so they'll ball up and wrap around the wire and then electrocute oh, no. themselves and that's a huge issue like in south africa about 13 percent of pangolins a year are taken out by electric fences and so it's a huge huge issue and it's one of those things where it's like they can't really be blamed for that that's not their fault that fences across their landscape but it does go to show the weak spot of the defense mechanism of balling up and that you're portable and that when you hit something that gets inside that ball it's not beneficial so it was hard to take points off them for things that aren't their fault but right yeah it's not the most foolproof possible strategy yes exactly you mentioned earlier that they're up against some very clever predators in their range like chimpanzees can you think of any instances of like a predator that has like figured out the pangolin i know sometimes for something like an armadillo or something will be some predators that have figured out how to flip the armadillo over or maybe get underneath them or sometimes you'll see this happen where like a predator will figure out a counter to the animal's like strategy can you think of any examples of a predator outsmarting the pangolin or otherwise like getting through those defenses in terms of like larger predators i think lions and larger cats have a big problem because really they are restricted to the ways that they can get into that ball not high dexterity (laughs) no chimpanzees i think a bit more clever they have a bit more use of kind of pulling things apart and getting in and about but actually the kind of one of the main threats i think in terms of animal things that can take advantage of the pangolin is the scales the way that they line up there are gaps of fleshiness in there and so different sorts of parasites can get in (gasps) and i think particularly for young animals that's an issue when they kind of under um the scales or if they get in the center so It's not necessarily the big animals you would think about that are going to come along and outsmart them. It's the little things that can sneak through the defences. It's Luke Skywalker getting into the uh, little vent on the Death Star. Exactly. That's the perfect, because it is the ball. It is the Luke Skywalker shooting that one little thump down, use the force, kind of hope for the best moment. Um, Yes. So I would say bigger predators, not too much. Unless, I mean... We've talked about this on my podcast a lot. We have a series called Rizu where we talk about, uh, we review zoos, which mm-hmm. I think is a, not as good a pun as yours, but it's a good pun. <laughs> she is terrified of chimpanzees, uh, my co-host Jodie, because she just doesn't like, she thinks they're big and they're smart and they're strong. Is it maybe an uncanny valley thing? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to see the fight between a pangolin and a chimpanzee because I don't think it would end particularly well for the pangolin. But the scales, they do what they can. They do what they can. Yeah. And they are, you know, by rolling up in a ball, they are sort of maximizing the level of coverage they're getting. It's not like they're just kind of relying on it passively. They're actually like, okay, I have these scales. I can use them to the most possible advantage by just closing up all those gaps and go in full defense mode. Yes, exactly. They call it a turtle strategy where you like load up all of like you put all of your points into defense and you don't do anything. <laughs> you just like <laughs> stop and wait and let the enemy like tire themselves out and exhaust all their resources. And then once they're like weakened, then you're like, boom. But the thing is, they don't have the boom. They, <laughs> they will just kind of go, is he gone yet? Uh, okay, now we, we're good. We're good. We're good. <laughs> They're like the pacifists. They're so peaceful. I mean, unless we're not ants or termites. So to us, they seem very benign and passive and peaceful and gentle. Um, If we were termites, we would probably see them quite differently. 
yeah, actually, that's a very good point. It's all about perspective. It is all about perspective. And yeah, if if it was just the zoo termites of us, that would not. That would. <laughs> Any termites listening? I'm so sorry. This is probably a rough episode for you. Yeah, we're deep condolences to the twenty thousand of you uh, a night that get eaten by pangolins. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. Um, a menace to the termite community. <laughs> I was going to say, if we did an in memoriam, like the Oscars type style, black and white images of termites, we'd be here for about six years so we can't even it's do a slideshow the best of but it's just like the same termite over and over again <laughs> just from different angles they'll never know they'll never know just use the same picture. <laughs> they can't tell yeah. <laughs> so the last category that we rate our animals on that i feel like i have strong feelings about the pangolin in this category oh. is aesthetics no that's interesting <laughs> I, okay. I have a feeling I probably know where you're going to go with this but what do you give the pangolin out of 10 for aesthetics well I this was my lowest category oh wow so I don't know I'm intrigued oh that's surprising to me I promise I'm not going to be mad at you it's okay okay so <laughs> the reason I, I've put it lowest is that yes it has the pluses of the but I'm building the tension now so you can fight, hear the number in a second I, the reason that <laughs> I kind of put it lowest is that yes it has the scales yes it has the cuteness which is plus but Listening to recent episodes about things like jewel wasps, like the most gorgeous, beautiful thing in the world in terms of colours <laughs> and showing off. So pangolins are mostly brown, beigey, dull kind of colours. They're not big show. Gotcha. So in terms of aesthetics, while it is pleasing and interesting, it's not like a... I was going to say this is how you know I'm too into animals. I was going to say it's not a cassowary. <laughs> and then like some people are going to listen and go like cassowaries aren't good looking but to me they are to me they are so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's the bright blue it does something exactly the and the kind of crest it's not got that kind of showiness to it mm. um and so that's why i have i mean i'm building this up to be like a two it's not a two it's like a seven uh <laughs> that's good still i think I, I was trying to think of like if i was rating like i'm a big like movie person and like i like to like come away from a movie and be like less than five is like okay to bad five and above like five is like uh six is fine seven i think is good yeah, but could be Eight, better great nine excellent ten perfect so for me i think it's good not great so that's why i feel that yes so i don't know did, what were your strong opinions so earlier you were talking about how like you did a lot of different things but like animals were always sort of the thing you came back to and you know i've gone through a lot of times in my life where i've focused on different hobbies like creative hobbies so i've done art and photography and you know all sorts of different stuff and one of my favorite drawings i've ever made was a drawing that i did of a pangolin and I immediately regretted starting this drawing because then I realized I had to draw every single mm -hmm. scale mm -hmm. and then I shaded it with stippling. So I had to draw little tiny dots on every single scale and shade every scale individually with dots, which is a terrible idea, but I'm quite <laughs> pleased with how it turned out. It ended up looking very nice, but it took me many, many hours. And just throughout the process, I think of like drawing that, it made me really focus on the individual little pieces of the pangolin and like, the reason I think they're so beautiful to me is that, first of all, they have so many curves. You know, like everything about them has a sort of swooping, like, mm. curve to it, almost like, like a golden ratio sort yeah. of thing, you know? Like it has that sort of very smooth, they have like a dome-shaped back, but then also a curvy tail. Their nose is curved, their, like, claws are curved, and like everything kind of follows this sort of, like, flowing motion to them. Mm -hmm. And then just like the icing on the cake for me is their scales because they look to me like like flower petals. I love that. 
maybe lotus petals or something mm -hmm. just because of the way that they overlap but they also slightly like float over each other you know mm -hmm. like they're not completely touching and it just looks like a maybe a less romantic way to say it would be a pine cone <laughs> they kind of look like a pine cone <laughs> this the nicknames come in thick and fast for them so like their name <laughs> pangolin comes from the malay word penguling which means to roll up makes sense but like the nicknames are like scaly anteater, like walking pine cone, like it all comes together in the aesthetics category. It all makes sense when you're like, yeah, okay, yeah. But no, that, I yeah. think that's a very romantic but beautiful. Vi like I see that, like I do see that, and I do think I agree. But I had to be harsh in a category, so I had no, to I feel be like, like I had to be cruel. I don't say this to uh, try to change your mind. This is not. I'm not. I'm not trying to convince you or anything. This is just. These were all like thoughts that I have about them when I look at them that I just like haven't had an excuse to to like put into words on the podcast yet so i'm just like while we're here here's all my thoughts and feelings exactly exactly <laughs> get them out now and then yeah if you I do know. you'll have we'll have to do a pangolin part two once we've like because i feel like <laughs> i can tell that you're excited but so you're like yeah so we'll have excited. some <laughs> yeah absolutely well you mentioned there's eight different species of pangolins so we like, need to get specific yeah yeah there's room to to zero in on them so an I'm eight not, episode series there you go i'm not opposed um but yeah i you know i i do see what you mean i will concede there mm -hmm. are they don't have the flashy colors they don't have the flashy markings would love to see a little bit of creativity can you imagine if they had all that stuff going for them and also some sort of like beautiful bright like coloration i mean it would probably not work in their favor you are correct but also it's like it's one of the, it's such a hard category to rank aesthetics because you're like for me personally they're not exciting to look at necessarily in terms of colors but that's the point right it's like watching a black and white film you're like oh well it was meant to be like this but also I'd prefer if it was in colour, but also it might not actually be better if it was in colour. Like this weird, like... Like, was this the artist's vision? Yeah. And for, like for me, like I had to... Yeah, I feel like I'm a very visual person. Like I like visually stimulating things. And so there is a lot to look at, but do like a tie-dye one or something. <laughs> Just one. We'll Just do one. a limited edition release. Of yes. One... We'll come up with a new pangolin. And, yeah. Get our scientists on it immediately. <laughs> Ship them off to Jurassic Park or something. Get them to work on it. It'll be fine. I do think that like with the way that the scales are so like geometrically placed and aligned is like mesmerizing. I feel like I could just stare at them all day. Like you could kind of get lost in them. Oh, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they then ball up perfectly and it, it doesn't look like when a hedgehog or something kind of foops around, you've kind of got spikes and it looks quite aggressive and like armadillos have this similar thing going for them that when they ball up, they kind of just look like a little orb. So it's not unique to them that they can just foomp away into this little kind of orb, but it kind of, yeah. I mean, become orb. Become orb. <laughs> I mean, one more bad news story, and that's going to be me. You'll never see me again. Just become orb. That's it. That's me. Uh, <laughs> this whole episode has just been us pondering the orb. The orb. That's just. <laughs> I feel like there's a whole series there as well for you. You can just do creatures that become orbs. <gasps> and we'll call it pondering the orb. Pondering, pondering the orb. my orbs. <laughs> the series. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one. Well, we've done roly-polies, so we'll do like roly-polies, uh, armadillos. We got all sorts of conglobating friends. Yeah. I love that word, conglobate. Do you guys use that word a lot? 
I've never heard it before, but I think I'm now going to use it for everything. Because Wordle was expanding my vocabulary already, but it was stuck to five-letter words. This is great. This is much better. <laughs> this is the level I need. Uh, <laughs> I try to make sure we uh, learn a new vocab word every single day. That's what people come here for is a vocab lesson, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with the animals. No, the animals are just a context to put your new vocab words in. <laughs> You mentioned that you work with conservation for pangolins. So what is the conservation situation looking like for pangolins in the world? So this is like my big, because I've worked in zoos and aquariums and all these things, I think conservation has to be at the heart of everything we kind of do. Because if people come and see these animals and whatever it is in a zoo and there's no purpose to it, it just falls flat and it's, there's no point in having the zoo at all. So I think it's really important to kind of, whenever you're talking about animals, place them in context, place them this kind of conservation message around them. And I think for the pangolin, it's so, so important. As I've said before, I think I mentioned they're the most trafficked mammal in the world. And that might sound like, oh, that's just kind of one of those buzzword titles that they put on things. But that is not the case at all. Over the last 20 years, about a million pangolins have been taken from the wild, so much so that kind of the trade has shifted. They've exhausted the species that are in Asia. They are, I think, three of the four species are listed as critically endangered by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. The fourth species is listed as endangered. So they're kind of spent in terms of being taken. And so turned to the African species. So they're, they're kind of getting hit with the trafficking and all the other threats and kind of the changing landscape, as I mentioned, with the fencing before. It's not a good situation for them. In the African species, I believe two are endangered, two are vulnerable. So it's not a great picture for the pangolin. And I think, I, like, I love them so much. And I think there's a lot that everyone can do for them. The major threats are things like trafficking, which I didn't know how individuals could deal with trafficking on a day-to-day -day basis. I wasn't aware of that until I spoke to someone on my podcast all about trafficking and they were talking about how trafficking in terms of animals takes place along the same channels as artwork, as drugs, as all of the other sorts of trafficking that goes on. So if you see anything that could have been trafficked, if you see someone who perhaps looks like they're in a situation where maybe they kind of are in a dangerous situation um, without getting too dark, flagging trafficking or movement of things illegally in any way can help to bring down the trade of animals and the trade of pangolins. Here in Europe, it's not as big of an issue, but a lot of trade going to Asia because they have the carrot and the scales, they kind of are used in a lot of traditional medicines. So there's that kind of element going on there. Other threats, things like hunting for bushmeat and things is a lot less, but I think it gets grouped in the big threats. And then you have the changing landscape. So climate change with the building and of habitat fragmentation and things like that. There's all sorts of things going on that are kind of changing the landscape, changing the areas that they can move and live in. And so it's a huge, huge issue. All of those little things that when people say recycle or reuse or do this or the next thing, they all go on to like impact more species than just the big charismatic megafauna that you see advertised. It affects more than just tigers and elephants and whales. It affects the little things like the pangolins as well, which are so important and so amazing. Something that I like to highlight, especially in terms of the pangolin, because they are the kind of leaving message of conservation for them, is when you're talking about pangolin, I think a lot of the time it's talked about in a way that blames or points the finger at certain groups of people. Points the finger at China or at Vietnam because they do this or they do that or they do the next thing. And I think that's a really dangerous narrative to establish because when you start pointing fingers at whole countries, that's not how conservation and the consumption of animals and wildlife products actually works. It's kind of like one of those things that if you demonize all these people, it can be really dangerous and it kind of disincentivizes the people who are blamed and it can turn into borderline, if not full 
racism or offensiveness if you are kind of pointing these fingers. So be careful when you're phrasing pangolins are trafficked or pangolins are doing this or pangolins are being used in these ways by these communities or this. Be careful how you speak about it and do your research before you really start pointing the finger because the waters are very muddy there and it's not just everyone is using pangolins in the countries where they're being shipped to. It's not that at all. So that's kind of my other message I like to highlight is just be like really careful with how you phrase the messaging around certain things because it can get dangerous in a bit. Phrasing can be a bit funny in terms of wildlife conservation. I guess that kind of links back to the politics of, I think that's the benefit of having a, my kind of political mind and my like conservation mind and all of these minds come together. I'm like, please just be kind to one another when you're talking to them with conservation and just be aware that we don't have to fight each other to make positive things happen. Like this was something we were talking also to Dr. Christine Wilkinson about was that, um, you know, conservation requires a lot more human empathy than I think is usually presented. <laughs> yes. There's some things where it can be confusing why people use keratin for traditional medicines or whatever it is, but shouting at them maybe isn't the best solution. Like having to yeah. sit down and having a discussion. And, and I think especially when it comes to like, there's often pictures painted of kind of groups in Africa, kind of like, oh, they use pangolin for traditional ceremonies. But at the end of the day, and this is coming from someone who loves them more than anything else in the world, one pangolin being taken from the wild is not going to end the species forever and ever and ever. It's when it gets scaled up and kind of all of these threats combine that it then becomes an issue. And so it's really this kind of tricky, complex, muddied narrative that you've got to pull apart these threats. And so just be careful who you're talking to and talking about and who you're including in the discussion about conservation, because yeah. it's something that's really important to me to try and highlight. I don't know. It's something that I yeah. like to think about a lot. Yeah. And here in here in the United States, too, something we talk about is how like people that are indigenous to this area have been in equilibrium with these animals for, you know, thousands of years. Yes. So their cultures and customs have been in a state of balance for so long. And then once industrialism starts to play a role in it, everything gets just scaled up way beyond what the ecosystem can handle. Yeah. And I think the best thing we can do, I kind of took a dive into like the negatives, but I think the positive that we have to kind of lift back up in is that there are so many ways that we can support the pangolin positively in things like yeah changing your behavior to do with climate change just talking about the pangolin and other unusual creatures i think is so important because even the big charities obviously you see kind of them promote tigers or whatever it is i keep bringing them up and they are important and they're wonderful and they're fantastic but there are other animals out there suffering as well. So talk about mm -hmm. the weird things. Talk about the weird stuff that people don't think about and bring that stuff up. Yeah, support charities that maybe are developing new eco-friendly fencing because obviously we talked about habitat fragmentation being an issue. There are fences that can be employed and used in ways that allow pangolins underneath. So they can just scooch underneath. So there's all of these different things and charities and stuff you can kind of support in a positive, more uplifting way than <laughs> it's all doom and gloom. It's not all doom and gloom. Uh, there is a lot you can do to help save these wonderful, beautiful, amazing things. I love a healthy dose of conservation optimism. Yes. <laughs> I think that's, I just had Julia Meunier from Conservation Optimism, the kind of like University of Oxford kind of movement on my podcast. And she's just like, you know that way where I came away from the conversation like I often get down in the dumps about certain things and I think it's like yeah you feel your feelings and feel the emotions and feel the anger or the sadness or the confusion about conservation whatever it is but at the end of the day try and frame it in a positive way because like you just get on so much better if you're positive you make more positive connections you meet more amazing people and you just get along better in life if you try and, and frame it in a positive way or in like a hopeful way right that's like exactly you know, there are things we can do you don't have to just well have yourself a wallow <laughs> <laughs> wallow it out wallow it out 
and then and then we'll all pitch in to make everything better for everybody. Exactly. You can tell you've done 150 of these because you you're able to link back to the very first thing we talked about so it's smoothly. It's called callback, baby. Nailed it. It's comedy 101. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jack, I would love it if you could let folks listening know where they can find your podcast, where they can hear more of your conservation work and listen to more about pangolins and all the other delightful critters that you spotlight on your show. Let folks know where they can find you. Yeah. So thank you, everyone. For anyone who's kind of forgotten my name through, I am Jack. <laughs> Uh, Jack Baker. Yeah, I host Pangolin, the conservation podcast, which is a look at all underappreciated, underacknowledged members of the conservation community, whether that be unusual species. So we focused on things like armadillos, bison reintroduction. We've talked about interesting, weird things, water voles, red pandas. We've talked about animals that are kind of popular. So we talked about giraffes, but we kind of reframed it on like looking at how conservation people don't appreciate how endangered giraffes are so we sometimes focus around weird animals or conservation stories we also focus around people so and um, we talk about communities that are affected by conservation we talk about people who are experiencing drought and how they are forced to into these kind of wildlife conflicts and how we can resolve that element and so all these kind of underappreciated elements are up for discussion and the first six episodes are all about the pangolin um so if you have gotten a taste that i have experts on every episode it's not just me i sit and interview someone much like this every episode some of my favorites about tapirs and koalas and all sorts of stuff so lots of good stuff going on over at pangolin the conservation podcast which is on spotify google Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this it's probably on there as well i've had a lot of people like reach out to us and let us know that like listening to this podcast has made them feel like they want to get back into either studying or working with wildlife you know or doing something that can help make the world a better place <laughs> for animal friends so um you know that's a, an awesome way to start yeah and i think it's good for me and i listeners you're coming on a journey with me because i just get i basically <laughs> send invites out to people who inspire me and i'm like they say yes and then i'm like okay i'm gonna ask them all the questions i've always wanted to ask so it's it's a great time it's sometimes a laugh it's sometimes more serious it's sometimes whatever it is but i just like it's it's great I love it. Awesome. I mean, not to big myself up, like I just love having the conversations. I hope people like listening. No, hype yourself up. That's <laughs> set those expectations sky high. Exactly. And <laughs> the, if you want to reach out to me to chat about anything, if you have questions about what I said, you can get me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. I'm at Pangolin Podcast on all of them. So reach out, tell me you love pangolins, tell me you <laughs> disagree with something I've said, my rankings, ratings, whatever it is. <laughs> I'm more than happy to hear it and I will discuss, more than happy to discuss. And yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jack. Highly recommend. Um, I'll, I'll have links to everything in the show notes as well. So anybody listening to this episode can open that up and click right on through. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge today. I'm glad I saved pangolins because <laughs> this feels so fulfilling. Oh, <laughs> this I'm feels so like glad. a culmination of, of what, like what what we've been waiting for, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad. I hopefully you're smiling. So, but you might I just am. be being polite. I hope all the listeners are also smiling and we're not disappointed. Oh, I'm not this polite. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, there's there's so much more out there about them to learn. And this has just been like I feel like we've recorded for an hour, but we could have gone for two, three, four, or five hours if we really wanted to get into the nitty gritty so or worse comes to worse you can come on my show and we can talk about it there <gasps> and then 
the you overflow can, <laughs> the overflow just like people can come to this one part one and then any questions you had left over we can do part two. <laughs> absolutely well thank you so much for your time jack it's been a delight and we will catch you later thank you so much thank you and thanks everyone for listening hopefully you'll <laughs> hear me again soon <laughs> absolutely <laughs> thanks jack bye, bye. Thank you so much for listening, friends. I hope that by now you have fallen in love with the pangolin along with us. If you liked what you heard today, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a five-star review on your podcatcher. If you happen to use Podchaser for every review left on their website during the month of April, they are donating to World Central Kitchen to help feed Ukrainian refugees. And I'm also replying to reviews to double the donation. So find us on Podchaser to review us for a good cause. I'm also gathering questions for for an upcoming Q&A episode. So if you are curious about me or Christian or our podcasting journey or pretty much anything, please send in those questions. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can send us an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have any questions or a cool animal you'd like to hear about. Finally, we'd like to say thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other wonderful shows, like the ones that you have heard promos for here today. You can check them out and learn more about the network over at MaximumFun.org. And while you're there, please consider signing up for a membership to keep us going along with the rest of the shows on the network. Lastly, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our incredible theme music. That is all for today. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.